Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is Save the Nation on ADH TV. And I'm David Flint, and I'm delighted today to have as our guest Peter O'Brien. Peter O'Brien is a friend of this program and has been interviewed before. And uh, it's about a book, a very interesting book. There's a strap on where to go to buy it if you want to buy it. And it's the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, The No Case. And it's by Peter O'Brien and published by Connor Court. But uh, you can get a copy if you wish. You can see a strap on the screen now, which tells you where to go if you want to read that book. And it will be a very important book for the coming referendum. Connor Court is uh, Australia's independent publisher, a publisher who's not afraid of the truth. Many years ago, when I was younger, I wrote a book and I took it to a number of publishers. I got some, uh, some advice on who to take the book to. And I was introduced to one of the publishers by a well-known broadcaster. And uh, they read my book and they said, it's an excellent book but we're not going to publish it. And I said, well, why not? And they said, well, nobody, nobody on the left reads this sort of books and they're the only people who buy books. Well, Connor Court has shown that that is completely untrue. People read books about the truth and it's wonderful to have this book today. You can buy it, as I say, through uh, contact through ADH and you'll see that on the screen. Our, the, uh, the author today is a retired army officer. I've had him before on this program. He's a frequent contributor to Quadrant and to Spectator. He wrote a marvelous book about, uh, about uh, Bruce Pascoe. Bruce Pascoe is the questionable, questionable Aboriginal person who is very popular with the left. And in addition, he wrote a book Villain or Victim, A Defense of uh, Sir John Kerr and the Reserve Powers, a very important book. 
in relation to the reserve powers. Now, Peter, if I could uh, begin, could I ask you, why did you write this book? Oh, good morning, David, and thank you very much for having me on, on uh, Save the Nation again. And thank you also for your support and for writing the foreword to my book, which uh, I was very appreciative of. I started to write the book um, back in about June last year when shortly after Prime Minister Albanese had made his first first pledge as Prime Minister to implement the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And at that stage, the mo all the um, momentum seemed to be with this uh, proposal. There was a lot of happy vibe about it and so on. And, and there wasn't a lot of pushback at that stage. And I thought I really need to, um, to you know, I just felt impelled to put my uh, view. And so I started writing the book. And um, as, over the, re the months until then, I was refining it. Um, but the thing that I think needs to, I think this book is important um, because it fills a gap between um, very detailed and comprehensive books such as Keith Winshuttle's The Breakup of Australia and various um, positions on the, on the no case that are put by people such as Warren Mundine, Jacinta Price and so on. Um, this fills the gap um, where... It's a readable book. It can be read in an hour or two. It's not very long, and that was uh, intentional. But I wanted to give the general public um, a coverage of all the issues surrounding this voice. There are People will vote for the voice for varying reasons, um, and a lot of them are emotive. A lot of people feel genuine goodwill to, to, towards Aboriginal people, as I do myself, and, um, and they believe that we must atone for past wrongs, and, and, and that is true to some extent, although I do question how much atonement we have to, we have to do. Um, so, but I felt that there was a need to, for people to understand both the constitutional issues um, that, and the constitutional dangers in this proposal, but also to look realistically at the more emotive reasons why people might want to vote, vote yes in, in order to atone for the past. So um, I'm, I'm very concerned that Prime Minister Albanese, right from the word go, and he's maintained this line ever since, is that this is a simple proposition, a simple change to the Constitution and just good manners. And that's totally disingenuous. It's a major change to the Constitution. If it comes off, it'll be the most significant change the Constitution has ever undergone, and it will be a major concession for Aboriginal people. So there's a, huge, a world of difference between what... Prime Minister Albanese has said, and the truth. And if it, if the referendum fails, a lot of people will be feeling very upset that we are such a racist country that we could refuse such a simple um, request. So I, I wanted to um, give people enough ammunition to say, uh, not to say I didn't understand it, so I didn't vote for it. I want as many people as possible to be able to say, I didn't vote for it because I did understand it, and that's the purpose of writing the book. Peter, in my view, uh, this is likely to have three consequences. The first consequence is that we will have many more politicians. There will be a, a very well-funded and well-designed and beautifully designed building in which we will find the voice. There'll be somewhere in Canberra They'll have very excellent officers. They'll have enormous support staffs because they'll have to comment on all manner of activities. 
not only of the legislature, but of the government and all the instrumentalities of the government. There will be a need to be advised on all of these. They'll have to move around. They'll be regularly on television. They will be flying around the world because they will obviously have to attend many international consequences. The result will be we will have firstly many more politicians and most of them will come from what we can call, I think, the indigenous establishment. The second thing I think we will have, and a number of leading lawyers advise this, they warn this, including a former justice of the High Court of Australia, that is we will have endless litigation if the instrumentalities of government don't, uh, don't observe very carefully what are the opinions of the voice in relation to all manner of government activities. There'll be an enormous amount of litigation. The lawyers are flocking to support this because they see that there will be an enormous amount of work coming out of this if the governments don't immediately observe the, the advice of the voice. And the third thing I think is, and this, is, this will be a tragedy, I think not only will the gap, the gap that is the, the disadvantages which relate particularly to the remote areas, not only will these not be cured, worse they will be made worse. My reasoning for that is I think many people will think that if this goes through, the problems of the gap will have been cured and they don't have to worry about it anymore and the, the problems which relate to the remote areas will only get worse. That's my fear. What do you think of uh, my feelings about what will happen if the voice is passed by the people? I agree with every point you made, David. I think that, um, firstly, this is, um, this is, a, is a bureaucracy, um, and we know what bureaucracies do. Their natural tendency is that they grow, they become self-serving, and um, they will become more, it will become, no matter how constrained it is financially or administratively at the beginning, it will naturally grow and, and grow further and further away from the people it is really supposed to represent. Um, and as you say, they'll be off on international conferences and there'll be seminars and, and the, cost will, the cost will be enormous and, um, and it will not achieve what it's uh, intended to do because it will be further and further away from the people that it's supposed to serve it. The they talk about getting grassroots advice. Well, you don't get grassroots advice from a massive bureaucracy sitting in Canberra. Um, and uh, no matter how the the um, the, uh, the delegates, some of, some of them may be elected, many of them will be appointed. So it's it's an undemocratic institution from the word go. Um, and I and I totally agree with you that um, in terms of fixing the gap, this will this will be just a very expensive white ele elephant. Sorry. And, and, um, and, that, uh, sorry. and this will give uh, an additional voice to what are termed the indigenous people, Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. It will give them an additional voice. We all have some sort of a voice to Parliament, but this will give them an additional and secured voice under the Constitution. And I think you make the point that if you're going to give a preferential privilege to some people, if you're going to give that, that, those people should be very carefully defined. And you make the point in your book that uh, there's a problem in relation to who will benefit from this. And that is that there's a problem in relation to the definition of who is 
indigenous. You make that point, don't you? Yes, David, I'm pleased you brought that up. In fact, I, um, I seem to be about the only one that's um, making this point, but to me it seems um, un incontrovertible that if the Constitution gives special privileges or preferences a certain group of people, it must be the Constitution that makes clear who those people are. It can't be left up to Parliament or worse, the High Court. Um, if, if we're talking about genuine disadvantage, as more and more people, um, as the, the white and Aboriginal population intermarry and intermingle more and more, the, the Aboriginal population can only grow and um, this becomes more and more about entitlement and less and less about uh, disadvantage. In my view, unless the referendum question defined who the Aboriginal people are, who can sit on this voice, who can vote for it, then that should be a deal breaker in my view. I, I just cannot understand how something could be left open-ended for something as, a, as significant as this change. I think you make the point, don't you, in your book, that uh, a specialist, uh, an Indigenous specialist, Dr Ingram, questions whether of the 800,000-odd Indigenous people she is suspicious that perhaps up to 300,000 may not be really Indigenous, does she not? She does indeed, and, and she's not the only one um, uh, who, was, who was concerned about this. Um, and, and that's a huge proportion of the population that, that you know, and, and that, that is only going to get bigger if um, people can just um, put their hand up and say, yes, I'm Aboriginal, or even discover that they have some Aboriginality in their past some generations ago, and, and many of the people that are in this boat have only come to their Aboriginality later in life, um, and um, they've not they've not lived that that life. So it, it's it to me it's um, it's it's ridiculous that we should have this such a such a powerful provision. In fact, what what this what this referendum will do will establish um, an Aboriginal polity. Um, as a, uh, as a third constitutional entity, if you like, alongside the Commonwealth and the states. Um, so, and that's a very powerful position to be in. So we cannot leave it open to um, the, the vagaries of Parliament or, or even the High Court to, to decide who may or may not be on the voice. I think you're absolutely right. There are so many occasions now when you have contact with government in various ways and you have to fill out a form and uh, quite often you have to do that on your computer, and you come to a point where they ask you whether or not you are indigenous, and it's a matter of just ticking a box. And I suspect yeah, exactly. that uh, when people realize that there may well be an advantage in that dealing with the Commonwealth or the state, there may be an advantage in ticking the box that way. Many people are ticking the box that way, and here we have a an indigenous expert expressing exactly the same position, that the, the, there is no precision in relation to the definition of who is, who is not indigenous. But th there's an argument made all along, and you've no doubt heard it, that if the government can make laws, if the parliament can make laws in relation to the indigenous people, special laws in relation to them, surely it's fair, is it not, that uh, they be consulted before those laws are made. Isn't that reasonable? Yes, well, it is. In, in, in essence, it is. Um, if the government were to make laws that 
uniquely and specifically affect Aboriginal people. That is laws made under Section 5126 of the Constitution that the government can make laws in respect of Aboriginal people. And, and if that's the case, then certainly Aboriginal people should have a say in those laws. Now, I've, I've done a bit of a, um, a, a rough audit, um, and since the 1967 referendum, I've identified 65 pieces of legislation that presumably were enacted under Section 5126. Um, of those 65, only five of them could be considered what I would call coercive. In other words, legislation that might be seen as discriminatory against Aboriginal people, and they all related to the 2007 Northern Territory intervention. All the other pieces of legislation did deal with native title, they deal with grants, they deal with heritage protection, they deal with educational allowance supplement, and all, all they are all beneficial to Aboriginal people, and I've got no doubt that they are in the, um, in the canon of, of our law because Aboriginal people lobbied for them and asked for them and wanted them. So they had a say um, in, those, um, in the making of those laws. And, of course, we're now talking about um, going beyond that. This, the remit of this voice is well beyond laws that are made under Section um, 5126. It's any law that affects Aboriginal people. That's any law that affects you or I. And they already have a say through their 11 um, parliamentary representatives in the federal parliament alone, plus um, the National Indigenous Australians Agency, which is effectively the Department of Aboriginal Affairs, a budget of one point, a salary budget of one and a half billion per annum, and and land councils, the Council of Peaks, um, myriad other bodies in which Aboriginal people are, are lobbying um, for their for their rights and. In fact, Warren Mundine says every time he goes to Canberra, he trips over Indigenous people lobbying for their um, for their uh, rights and their and their interests, and so certainly they already have a huge say in in, um, in laws that are made affecting them. You'd think, wouldn't you, that the purpose of introducing this is because the Indigenous people are not voiceless? But you're effectively saying through all of your work that uh, obviously the Indigenous people have many voices and they, they have a peak, a council of peaks, which seems to be there to coordinate all these voices. So there seems to be no difficulty in the Indigenous people getting their views through to the government or the parliament of the day. Absolutely. The thing, of, the thing here is, of course, is that this, is, this referendum conflates two issues and that's the other thing that I have a major problem with. It conflates the idea of constitutional recognition for Aboriginal people with providing advice um, to, the, to the government of the day. Now, in my view, um, changes to the constitution should be specific, targeted and limited. We should not be having broad brush, vague um, changes to the constitution. And ideally, a change should address one particular problem. This tries to address two and doesn't do either of them very well at all. I'm surprised, even among senior government officials and senior senior people in the government, that there doesn't seem to be an understanding of what the Constitution is. There seems to be an idea that, for example, it's some sort of history book. Uh, it's referred to, for example, as the, uh, the birth certificate of the nation. What is the Australian Constitution, Peter? Uh, I'm glad you asked me that question, David, because that's one of the 
one of the things I particularly wanted to address in the book, this misunderstanding of what the Constitution is, and most people haven't read it. I still ask people in, in my circle of friends and acquaintances, have you read the Constitution? And most of them say they haven't read it. Now, um, and that would apply generally. What and, and you hear about, and this idea that it's the birth certificate of the nation is just a nonsense. Um, my, the, the Constitution is two things. The first thing is it's a power-sharing agreement between the Commonwealth and the states. And the second thing is that it's an operating manual for our parliament. Um, and as such, it's a legal contract. And as a legal contract, it's not an appropriate vehicle for feel-good rhetoric, which can be misinterpreted. And, um, and it's, it's, a base, it's a very prosaic document. It makes no statements about um, our history, as you say, or our values or our aspirations. My, my view is that our history, our values and our aspirations come through our legislation, come through our, um, the um, conventions and traditions that we inherited from Great Britain, but more importantly from our legislation, which has made us one of the most democratic and um, diverse countries on, on earth. And, and if we want to improve the lot of our um, Indigenous people, we do it through legislation. And in fact, once this voice is in the referendum, it will still require to be legislated. So um, it, that's how the Constitution is not the vehicle for this sort of um, uh, rhetoric. Well, it's nothing like the Declaration of Independence. Nothing. Whereas no. we find these things to be self-evident. It's, not, it's nothing like that. Even the American Constitution itself is nothing like that. It's a, it's a down-to-earth working right. document. Yes. And ours is the yeah. only... The only stirring part of the Constitution is the, the first part of the preamble, which is technically not part of the Constitution, it's part of the Constitution Act, which says, whereas the people of the several colonies, humbly relying on the blessings of Almighty God, have agreed to unite in an, in an indissoluble federal commonwealth under the Crown and under the Constitution. That's the only part that people will feel lifted by. The rest of it is a, a very down-to-earth document which goes into detail in a number of chapters about the organs of the government and the parliament of the Commonwealth. And uh, this will bring in, as we know, a new chapter. The first time, first time in over a century when a new chapter is being put in the Constitution, which should put us on our guard. Just going just going to one matter which pops up every so often, and it's extraordinary the number of people who repeat this, and they say, and you have indigenous leaders lamenting that once we were treated as no more than part of the flora and fauna of Australia. Is there any justification in saying that uh, the British and uh, uh, the Australian settlers treated the indigenous people as no more than part of the flora and fauna of this country? Well, they certainly didn't do it through legislation. It was, there, there was never in any legislature in Australia, either, either the colonial colony governments or the federal government, any legislation that was the, the Flora and Fauna Act. So the, the legislation that they claim to have been managed under never existed in any case. And the, that myth has been debunked on many occasions, not least by the ABC's fact check unit. And yet we still hear it. Minister Linda Burney said it when she first went to Parliament. She hasn't repeated it since then. But more recently, I came across an example where an, a, an Aboriginal legal academic at the ANU. A legal, a legal academic. Yes. I, 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 I just find that claim. extraordinary, yes. 
Yes, it's a, it's 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 but it's and it's part of the it's one of the things that uh, that worry me um, the repetition of these of these baseless claims which can cause people to think I should vote for this because you know of those these sorts of injustices. Um, the, the the other claim that's made, David, is that um, and it's been made by also by legal um, academics is that the constitution in 1901 totally ignored Aborigines. And that is just false. Um, it certainly it said that uh, it excluded Aborigines from Section 5126, and that was because it was the prerogative of the, the states at that stage to legislate in, res in respect of Aborigines. And Section 127, which was widely interpreted as meaning they couldn't be counted in the census, but that's, in, from what, what I understand and what I've read, that was not the intention uh, of Section 127. My belief, just for its worth, is that it related to um, the, re the returning of um, revenues to the states after the, Com after the Commonwealth had spent the money that they would get through customs and excise. In fact, interestingly, that the original intention was that customs and excise would pay the expenses of the Commonwealth and, and that the money that they didn't spend, which sounds laughable at the moment in these days, would be returned to the states, but they would not have account of the Aboriginal population in apportioning that that surplus. And that's my belief where Section 127 came from. But but the fact that um, those two sections specifically excluded Aborigines means that they must necessarily have been included in all the other sections of the Constitution. So it's a nonsense to say they were ignored yes. by the Constitution. And, and that section which was removed in 1967 was also in yeah. relation to the allocation of seats in the House. And there was a fear yeah. on, in the part, not only in relation to the finance, there was a fear on the part of the, the states that didn't have large Aboriginal populations that uh, South Australia, Western Australia and Queensland, who had nomadic Aboriginal populations, that they would exaggerate the numbers and thereby, for example, get more seats in the House on the basis yes. of this. So that was a purely practical provision, which by 1967 was completely outdated if it did ever serve any purpose. And Menzies was, uh, was he, the first version of the 1967 referendum was merely to remove that. Menzies didn't want Canberra to get the power to legislate with respect to Aboriginal people. This was a matter for the states. His argument was, and it's been repeated to me by one person who actually heard him saying it, but it's certainly there in the, in the legislation for the first version of the referendum. His argument was, if Canberra got the power, you would have a massive bureaucracy in Canberra. That would be the result of that. What you can do to help the Aboriginal people is to use Section 96, give conditional grants to the states, whereby the states are obliged to spend that money, for example, on Aboriginal education. That's he, how he envisaged the, the proper results of 1967. But when he retired, they let that, that first referendum expire, the bill for that referendum expire, halt then reintroduced it. But he agreed with the Labour Party, always a centralist party, he agreed with the Labour Party that this should also become a federal power, which meant that it was effectively, if Canberra wanted it, a, an exclusive federal power because they could uh, 
govern effectively and take over the whole field. Well, uh, and that's and we see and we see the result of that now effectively, don't we? We yes. see we see a, the massive growth of the of the Aboriginal industry um, through, by virtue of this um, of this legislation or this change. I mean. And it doesn't work because, for example, ATSIC had to be had to be abandoned because it was not working. Yeah. It was being abused. And, and this voice will be the same. Yes, I, I think that will be exactly the same. So why put it in the into the constitution if if the Albanese government wants to uh, experiment with a new body? Uh, why shouldn't it just be tried first by legislation? It's a good question, and, and um, in, a number of people have asked that. Um, the, the point is that um, uh, that is not what um, the proponents of the Uluru Statement from the Heart want. They do not want, um, uh, uh, they don't primarily don't care about the voice giving advice. What they want is a body into the Constitution that, as I said before, will give them an equal status with the Commonwealth and the states. They want they want the ability, and they've made no bones about this. Professor Marsha Langton, Professor Megan Davis have made no bones about the fact that this is all about, um, it's like a Trojan horse, or I call it constitutional malware, which will allow them to um, pre uh, precede the, uh, the other demands of the Uluru Statement, which are truth-telling, treaty, reparations, and some form of Aboriginal sovereignty. And so that's that's why the, why the push to put it into the constitution. Um, they want they want constitutional recognition which has teeth, and this uh, and the the views of, of Justice Ian Callanan and Kenneth Hayne and Greg Craven have all um, conceded that this will give the voice teeth. It will have teeth. So uh, those who referred to it as a third chamber, Malcolm Terminal, adopted that. Those who say it's a fourth arm of uh, government are right, are they not? Absolutely, uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, the, the, I, I, I was um, surprised when, um, when this question of um, giving advice to the executive government, uh, it, it, that's been in the, wordings, the draft wording since um, Prime Minister Albanese released it way back last year, the fact that it included executive government, but it only started to, um, come into the uh, public discourse in recent months um, when people started to realise just what a dangerous um, uh, addition that was and um, and started to try to walk that back. But when and um, when uh, the Attorney-General and the Solicitor-General gave advice to the referendum working group, we are not privy to that advice, we are now privy to what is purports to be the Solicitor-General's advice. But... It's, it seems clear that that advice was remove executive government, but the referendum working group said no, and the, gov and the Albanese government capitulated to that. So in my view, that's a good example of the, of the voice um, exercising a veto, even in embryo. And so there's, you know, there is no doubt that um, even by virtue of the fact that they can uh, take matters to court they can delay matters. That's effectively exercising a veto. They will not just accept a no. Um, and so it is a third chamber of parliament. It, it, I have no doubt about that. About that. Didn't uh, Mr Albanese himself say that only a very brave government would ignore the advice of the voice? He did say that. And, um, and, I, and, and I absolutely, uh, I say in my book, um, what are the odds that a Labor Greens government 
um, would uh, would overlook advice from the voice, particularly if you consider um, Article 19 of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which says that governments must must obtain full, f free, and prior informed consent for any legislation affecting Aboriginal people, and that's a covenant that we have subscribed to. It's form in my view, it forms part of our common law. So if you couple that with the the moral or the constitutional heft of the voice, that's a very powerful argument for them to take their grievances to the High Court. At this stage, I think it's important because uh, our views, your views and my views, could be misrepresented. And I hasten to say that I am certainly not a racist. I come from a Eurasian family. I certainly know about racism, and I'm not going to talk about that. But when I was a young lawyer or law student and a lawyer, I volunteered to work with what was then a non-governmental Aboriginal legal service started by Hal Wooten, who subsequently became a judge. He was then Dean of Law at the University of New South Wales, already a very successful QC. And he established this to help the Aboriginal people because uh, there were legal problems which they had and they didn't have the money to afford lawyers to help them. And so they started the Aboriginal Legal Service, not as a government body, but as a private body, which was eventually taken over and subsidized completely by the government. But I say that, and I'm sure you would say too, that uh, we are not racist. And this allegation that if you vote no that you're a racist, or if the country votes no, it will show that Australia is racist, is a fabrication. Absolutely, that, that's true. And I think what, what's, what is um, the word racist has now lost virtually all meaning. And um, you only have to criticise somebody of a different race, for what, justifiably or not, and you're regarded as a racist. So it's a nonsense argument, but it's, it's a powerful one. People shy away from the idea of being called a racist, um, but um, but you're right. Um, the, everybody in Australia, the vast majority of Australians, have nothing but goodwill towards Aboriginal people, and and have shame and embarrassment at the at the twenty percent or so that are suffering disproportionate and severe disadvantage. It, it's a stain on our on our national um, psyche, and um, it offends me as much as it offends anybody. But the solution to it is not a, you can have a different view on the solution to that problem without being racist. The, even the question of constitutional recognition could raise problems. Uh, Tony Abbott, for example, has a very elegant suggestion, has he not, which you mention in your book. And what is that that he proposes? Well, um, with the greatest respect to Tony, and I think he's—it's uh, a shame that he's no longer on our, in our parliament. But his his proposal, which I don't agree with, is to have a um, amend the preamble, which is, as you say, or to put a preamble into the into the constitution that recognises Australia's history as a, as having an Aboriginal heritage, a British legal foundation, and a migrant character, or words to that effect. Um, and Tony says that there's something in that for everyone. And that's the problem with that, with that proposal, because um, the vast majority of Aborigines, like most Australians, haven't read the Constitution and don't wouldn't care whether they were mentioned in it or not. Um, 
the people, the, ab the Aboriginal activists who desperately want constitutional recognition have already said that they, do, they will not accept symbolic recognition. And um, so we could put that preamble, we could put that preamble in. Um, it wouldn't satisfy um, the people who are really angling for constitutional recognition. That would just, the demands would still go on because what they want is political power in their own right. Um, that's what they mean by constitutional recognition. And it's a dangerous putting anything into the Constitution that is vague. Even Professor Greg Craven, who was a pro strong proponent of the voice, has said putting broad sweeping statements in preambles is very dangerous. And he's not the only one who says that. In my view, if something is to go into the Constitution, it must provide a practical and beneficial outcome. Otherwise, don't put it in there. That's because that's the nature of the Constitution. It's not a declaration of independence, as you pointed out earlier, David. Yes. And Professor Craven, who was originally involved in the discussions for The Voice, who wants it restricted purely to, in relation to the parliament and not, not in relation to the executive government, but is apparently still going to go ahead and vote or support this uh, if, it, if it goes to a referendum, uh, he makes the point, and the very valid point, that putting it in the preamble, as you say, will only encourage activist judges on the High Court to use that. And uh, the case that you mentioned, and I think he also mentions, is the case concerning a person called Love, who wasn't an Australian yes. citizen. He uh, committed acts of violence, criminal acts of violence for which he was punished and rightly punished. And when it came to the, the end of his sentences, the Commonwealth then proceeded, as it does with any foreigner who commits serious criminal offences, particularly violent offences, he was then set for deportation. And uh, his deportation was challenged, and the argument of the High Court was that he was Indigenous. And he came somehow within that definition because uh, he was able to show in the past some indigenous blood, but he wasn't an Australian, he was a citizen of another country. Coming here as a foreigner, and the High Court uh, found, did they not, that uh, uh, the Commonwealth Government could not deport him because of his Aboriginality? Yes, that's true. It's a, it's a startling case because um, what they decided was that um, his spiritual connection with the land, he wasn't even born in. Um, in Australia, but apparently he inherited some spiritual um, connection to the land, and that was what override, overrides any um, legal or constitutional consideration. Um, and the, the interesting thing is that he had never bothered to become an Australian citizen, but that didn't seem to count. He was That's why he was able to be deported as an alien, and the High Court has had ruled that the, uh, the government cannot define the terms in the Constitution, so uh, the term alien could be whatever what the high the high court decided it would be, and that and the same thing will apply in these um, vague um, if you, um, uh, provisions. As Professor um, James Allen from the University of Queensland said, you know, the Constitution gave them nothing, and yet they managed to produce the Love and Tom's decisions out of out of nothing in the Constitution. There was no wording or anything that. Uh, and yet they still managed to, um, and the way they did it was by just redefining what a what an alien was. And uh, so they could, they, they could do anything. Yes, Janet Albretson, who's uh, the a 
correspondent with the Australian, a commentator with the Australian, who has a doctorate, I think, in law. She says that she's spoken to numerous senior lawyers uh, who are practicing at the bar, and she says that there's a very strong view among them that uh, this, uh, this provision in the Constitution will be what is called justiciable. That is to say that people can sue on it, that uh, the High Court can rule on it. What, what is this debate about justiciability? There are some people who are saying this provision is not justiciable, and others who are saying it's justiciable. And, what what is all this about? Well, it, it it basically means that the high court or the court a court can decide that it has jurisdiction over that particular matter and can hear arguments for and against and make a ruling on it. So, if the voice decided that um, they made representations on a particular matter um, and they decided that the government had not given due weight to their to their representations, for example, or had ignored something, for example, such as their spiritual connection to the land, they could um, take that matter to the High Court and the High Court would almost certainly um, say, yes, we can hear this matter and, and, they, and they would. Justice Ian Callanan, who you referred to earlier, Justice Kenneth Hayne, um, who is a supporter of the, of the voice, have both said this is justiciable. And um, there's no doubt in my mind that Janet's right. And incidentally, Janet's written... written a series of terrific articles in the Australian, and um, I would commend anybody that's interested in this um, to have, a, have to look them up because she's uh, right on the money. Yes, they're certainly excellent articles. Does do you think that uh, if this gets up, it will divide Australians by race? It will be a form of uh, apartheid or segregation. Um, that's it, it, it. Will certainly divide us by race. Um, the the fact um, the um, the fact is that uh, the proponents of the voice say no, it's not about race. It's about who who was here first. Aboriginal people were here first, and uh, we dispossessed them, and so they have certain unique rights. But the fact is that the only people um, who can claim those rights are of one race, and if you are not of that race, you you cannot aspire to belong to it. Um, so. It's certainly it's um, dividing us by race. That you know, it's to say otherwise is pure semantics. With regard to apartheid, that's an interesting one. I um, I resisted that analogy for some time. I, I sort of and in my book I say I think it's more like um, describing people as Nazis because they're right wing, and um, I'm not sure that it's helpful. But um, and and I still I still um, resile from using that term in relation to this. But something came up recently um, that's caused me to rethink that slightly, and it's to do with um, white families adopting Aboriginal children. And and the the law now is that um, uh, a white family cannot adopt an Aboriginal child, no matter how long it's been in their care and what the wishes of the child are, unless the Aboriginal community agrees because it's alienating them from their culture. Well, that sounds a lot like apartheid to me, and that, and if that's the mindset um, that um, is behind all of these initiatives, then there, there there is an element of that. In relation to that, I do yes, in relation to the barrier on the difficulties for white families to adopt Aboriginal children, isn't this justified by the saga of the stolen generation? Um, well. This is, this is a, I address this in the book a bit. Um, 
the uh, the stolen generations is a myth. Um, it uh, uh, certainly children, Aboriginal children, uh, were taken from from families for various reasons, and the the claim is made that um, as many as fifty thousand or more children were stolen just to breed out their Aboriginality, to separate them from Aboriginal culture and turn them into white people. There is no basis in that at all. Um, and the best source for that is um, Keith Winchuttle, Fabrication of Aboriginal History. I think it's the third volume. And he exhaustively goes through um, the, the, the notes and the, the files. And, and his estimate is, is that something like maybe 8,000 um, Aboriginal children, mostly they would have been part Aboriginal, were taken out of, um, away from families. And, and the reasons were, A, they were either orphaned, they were being severely neglected, um, or they were given up by their families to um, go into trade uh, placement for um, uh, domestic work for girls and stockmen for boys. So um, in all the cases, about 8,000 of them that are, that are verifiable, were all for reasons that we would expect the government to take them. And so it's a myth, but, but we pay lip service to it um, without thinking about it. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's, I think it's a very bad basis to be, be making changes to the Constitution because it's, um, it's very, very yes. dodgy. According to uh, the latest statistics, I understand that the cases of child abuse in the Northern Territory about five times that in the states of Australia. And there's clearly evidence of uh, abuse, particularly the number of children who seem to be wandering around committing all sorts of offences. It's quite often said that they would prefer to be out and about rather than going home and uh, being the subject of abuse. Uh, so I, I think that uh, those who who seize the the saga of the stolen generation, those who apologise for the stolen generation, seem to be moving away from the facts, particularly the fact that very few cases actually succeeded in the courts where people were able to successfully sue for damages concerning their alleged being allegedly stolen. There's another matter that comes up, and that is in relation to the frontier wars, the massacres and frontier wars. In fact, when I was coming here today in the Australian, there was a, a report about the new head of the Australian War Memorial wanting to set up part of the War Memorial in relation to honouring uh, those who were involved in fighting the frontier wars. What, do, what does your research show in relation to massacres and the frontier wars? Well, this is another interesting one. I've been involved in um, fighting back against this war memorial initiative to treat um, the so-called colonial wars. They, 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 doesn't, they do not come within the, um, the, the ambit or the legal um, ambit of the War Memorial Act. Um, it's got nothing to do with the, the so-called wars. The, the, the story that's now gaining momentum is that up to 60,000, from 60,000 to 100,000 Aborigines were killed in a series of colonial wars. Um, and that figure is, is uns, unsupportable by any evidence. Um, the most, there, was, there certainly were massacres, there's no question about that, and they were deplorable. Um, but they didn't happen on the scale that, of 
that that's being claimed. The um, University of Newcastle has uh, a team that's been researching massacres and they have a, a map which, which details all the massacres that they've been able to find. I don't know how many researchers they've got. They've got quite a few and they've been working on it for a, lo for a long time. And they've come up with a figure of about 11,000 Aborigines that were killed in massacres across the continent and across our history that going back, going into, you know, the uh, mid middle of the 20th century. Um, so 11,000, that means that these researchers have overlooked something like 50 to 90,000 deaths. It's pretty hard to imagine how that could possibly happen. Um, but And yet it's gaining momentum and it's, it's, it's got the same cachet now as stolen generations. And it's, once again, it's a, it's being used as the as a, a basis for we must atone for these these um, atrocities, and one way we can do that is to uh, vote for the voice and show that we're not racist. But um, but it is academically unsustainable. Keith Winshuttle, I think, is a very significant historian, particularly in these matters. He has a practice which does not seem to be that of all current historians. He always tries to go back to, as far as he can, the original documents, the original sources, the original reports. And uh, he exposes many of the claims to be completely wrong. He shows that in, uh, in his book, The Fabrication of Aboriginal History, but also in the, in the other book concerning uh, uh, the breakup of Australia, which relates to the consequences of constitutional recognition. And he makes the point, as you do, that the Uluru Statement is not just about having a voice, it's about uh, the future breakup of this country. And people should be wary if they wish to endorse that, because this is, this is the first step, is it not? The Prime Minister said that. It's the, it's the first step of uh, applying the Uluru Statement in Australia. Did he not say that? He, he did. That was his first um, commitment. Um, on election night, when he realised that he'd won the prime ministership, his first commitment was to implement the Uluru Statement in full. That was what he said, and he's never resiled from that. Incidentally, might, might I just digress and endorse uh, what you said about Keith Winshuttle? His book, The Breakup of, of Australia, is probably the most important book people can read on this topic. Um, it's very readable, and it's informed a lot of my own thoughts and research. So um, after you've read my book, you should get hold of Keith's. And, uh, but um, yes, um, this is the, they make no bones about the fact that there is a wider agenda, um, and it's about Aboriginal sovereignty, and uh, and we see that with uh, you know the so-called Senator Lydia Thorpe. I say so-called because I don't really think she's she should be regarded as a senator, but she's telling us what what um, quite openly what what they all want, they're just going about it in a rather more subtle way than um, Lydia Thorpe is. So is the voice the last demand? Oh, absolutely not. Um, and we know that, um, we know that uh, if we look at, for example, it's what's happening in Victoria, they have their First Peoples Assembly, I think it's called First Peoples Assembly, and they are, um, their job is to organise a treaty um, they, so they don't, don't have a voice enshrined in the constitution, but the government has basically knuckled under and said, we're going to, you, you tell us what you want and we'll, we'll sign the treaty. That's effectively the Victorian government approach. That's what the proponents of the voice want here. They want truth telling, whatever that means. 
and they want a treaty. And following on, and following on from the treaty will be, or part of the treaty, will be a separate um, Aboriginal polity in Australia, separate rules, separate um, legislative power, um, and that's that's the ultimate aim. And and most of them make no secret of it. They're telling us, Dr. Marsha Langton is telling us this, but we're not listening. Didn't the Victorian government also enter into an agreement which was uh, negated by the Commonwealth government, an agreement with the communist government of China? Yes. Yep. There seems to they be did. a propensity and, uh, for entering into yes. treaties. It seems to me, at this stage, at this stage of our existence, to be ridiculous to be entering into treaties. And in some colonial situations where there was an organised opposition to settlement, then there were quite often strong disagreements, wars, for example, and eventually treaties. But no such thing happened in Australia. In fact, they, the book by Keith Winshuttle demonstrates that the accommodation model was the one chosen by the Indigenous people. It suited them, particularly in relation yeah. to what the British could offer in relation to regular food, for example, it suited them to come in, to be accommodated, rather than resisting settlement. Settlement, and if you go back to King George III's instructions to Governor Philip, it was to treat the people. It wasn't to, it wasn't to treat them like fauna and flora. It was, yes. to, it was to treat yeah. them properly and to, treat, yeah. and, and to apply the same law in relation to them. The idea, for example, that they didn't get the advantages of becoming uh, part of this country is not true. Uh, there were, for example, before, before, uh, before federation in the referendums, Aboriginal women could vote in South Australia and did because women were given the vote in South Australia quite early. So yeah. Aboriginal women were voting in relation to the referendum concerning federation, whereas uh, white women couldn't vote in Victoria and New South Wales because women weren't yes. given the vote in those states at yes. that time. It, it, and by 1967, all Aborigines had the vote. It's often presented as making them citizens and giving them the right to vote. They already had it. They'd had it for long. They became citizens at the same time as everybody else did. In 1949, when we created the citizenship of Australia, which didn't exist until then, we were just British subjects. In 1949, we became both, and uh, this extended to all people, including indigenous people. I, yes, I, I make the point in my book, but sorry, um, um, in in the late nineteen, uh, in the late eighteen sixties, Aboriginal men could vote in New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, and Tasmania, and that was at the same time that the United States was fighting a deadly civil war over um, slavery. So, you know, that, that tells you how advanced Australia really was in in terms of race relations. There are even photographs, are there not, of people going to the polling stations, yes, which yes. Keith Winshuttle yes. shows in one of his yes. books. Yes. Uh, so yep. it, at the time, at, before Federation, so it, I, I know my own my own uh, maternal grandparents who came to Australia. That was in about 1915. They came to Australia from what is now Indonesia. It was the Dutch East Indies. My grandfather wanted to buy a farm 
And he bought a farm. They came through. They were given the uh, the dictation test, which applied to people of questionable yeah. racial origins. And they passed it through with flying colours, including the little children. And they went out and they bought a farm at uh, Blacktown. And uh, the money was slow in coming through. His money was slow in coming through from... Uh, from uh, Batavia, as it then was, and uh, he needed to take his produce to town, and uh, he did a he did a deal with the lady next door, the family next door, and she she would take him in her sulky, her horse and sulky, into town to sell his produce. She was an Aboriginal person. There, yeah. there you had an <laughs> Aboriginal family. Yeah. They owned the farm yes. next door yes. to yes. my maternal yes. grandparents. My mother told me, yeah. I remember my mother telling me there were several Ab Aboriginal children in the same class at the local school. The yeah. idea that they weren't being treated properly, at least in parts of Australia, is untrue. Yes. And they certainly could vote in many states, in the, in the four states, apart from Queensland and Western yes. Australia. But, that was to change, but by by the '67 referendum, that was meant to be a statement that uh, we were all equal, we should all come in together, but yes. that not that one of us should be different from the other. That this is a danger, is it yes. not of the voice? That it's, it's going backwards. It's going, backwards. going backwards. And uh, I, I think that uh, Australians should be very concerned about this. And I, I noticed that from the latest opinion poll, the latest opinion poll is showing what I think was always predictable. Uh, and uh, it just so happens that uh, I belong to an organisation which is the last organisation, the only organisation in Australia which has living experience of running a winning referendum campaign. This Australians a constitutional monarchy. And we're the only organisation that remembers how to run a winning campaign and uh, certainly that's our experience that uh, at the beginning everybody's saying it's inevitable and yes. this is going to win and yep. uh, but gradually over time people learn yes. the real arguments now this book of yours and i must thank you so much for giving up your time for this interview this book of yours the indigenous voice to parliament the vote no case this is available this is available through Connor Court, and there's a there's information down in the screen, the bottom of the screen, where to go in relation to getting that book. It is not expensive. It's a small book, but it summarises wonderfully why you should consider voting no. Remember, remember. I think all viewers should remember. The Albanese government did not want a level playing field. The 1999 referendum. Uh, in which uh, John Howard was Prime Minister, Nick Minchin was the Minister of State, they ensured that there was a level playing field, that both sides were treated equally from the point of view of the running of the referendum. The government introduced legislation to take away the yes-no booklet, and they've done things which will ensure that there will not be a level playing field. So to, as part of the, that level playing field, it's well worth looking at this book to find out what the arguments are in relation to the no case. So I congratulate you and I thank you. And, uh, and uh, Peter, thank you very much. And uh, this is uh, the program Save the Nation on ADH-TV. And I'm David Flint and until next time, thank you. <laughs>